Welcome to Pharma Talk Radio. I'm Valerie Bowling. I'm pleased to share a really special session from the 2019 DFARM conference in which Celarity's Chief Data Officer, Malin Kamkolkar, discussed the collective struggle to evolve a drug development organization's data and analytics culture and capabilities. For details on the 10th annual DFARM event, visit theconferenceforum.org. Enjoy the podcast. You know, it was so funny, I caught up with a friend of mine yesterday that I hadn't seen in a while from PA Consulting, and uh, I fondly remember that was a sabbatical between Novartis and Sanofi that I spent doing everything except healthcare. Uh, worked on autonomous vehicles, worked on a number of different interesting projects, but perhaps the most profound one is something that, as I heard through yesterday's discussions, is still hyper-relevant today, and this was working as a special advisor to the United Nations on the Global Sustainability Program. And we ran the first hackathon, and it was interesting because I had to give the keynote the day Donald Trump was announced. And we're talking about climate change. Like, ooh, what a way to open. Um, and not being political, but it was just fascinating to say this is one of those things that you still have to keep pushing forward with, irrespective of the barriers. And what was interesting, speaking with all the chief sustainability officers of some major Fortune 500 and Fortune 1000 companies that came to this hackathon, was the eventuality that connects me to this conference, which was there were three fundamental areas. If you take away all the 17 uh, sustainable development goals, there were three fundamental areas that if we could crack that nut, then we truly have advanced humanity in the right direction. And those were education, those were nutrition, and the last was healthcare. <clears throat> and healthcare, as we all know in this room, is one of the most complex areas. Not, of course, regulatory is there, but Let's face it, biology is complex. Right? It's not something that we immediately understand, and God bless, we haven't figured it all out, but we're on a track to doing so. And I thought about the role technology and AI has in that space, and particularly the impact of these technologies, either in a utopian outcome or a dystopian fallout, which are both very relevant in our discussions as we apply it to healthcare. And I talk about this as a collective struggle because, you know, despite my faking it well in the AI world, um, there's always this perception of how do you actually create value out of these things that you're doing that actually have meaningful, measurable impact over short periods of time that could, of course, lead to an open revolution in terms of how we do this work. So I want to start out with <clears throat> a very simple thing, just to level set. So AI is nothing more than patterns and predictions, ideally based on logic, reasoning, and learning. Okay, very simple. It needs to be trained on fit-for-purpose data, and I'll talk a little bit about data in a second. But what I mean by fit-for-purpose is that it needs to be human-interpretable and machine-usable. Most of the data in healthcare today sucks when it comes to machine interpretability. It's awful. We've got more standards than we care to name. We've got big issues in just being able to find data. In fact, I remember when I was the CDO at Sanofi, I presented to the board and they said, Millen, what do you think the number one problem is that we have in our company? And I said, it's the letter F in the FAIR standards initiative, findable, accessible, interoperable, reusable data. I said, if we can solve F, we've probably done 99% of what Sanofi actually needs in the data space. But it was a big issue. 
But fit-for-purpose data is critical, because otherwise what you're sprinkling on top of it is basically stupid computer programming, right? But all of this, and what I realized over a period of time, just to keep it simple so that people understood the concept of AI in terms of its impact, we're really on two parameters. Do things better or do better things. Do things better was operational effectiveness, operational excellence, operational research. Do better things really was about changing process. Changing process. You don't get the big breakthrough wins if you just apply AI to an existing process. That is not innovation, that's renovation. And that's what we see a lot in today in the cesspool of pilots that exist out there today. Right? But you can do some interesting work in this space, and it's been proven, and we're starting to make these results really nice. One is, and these are just examples. I mean, you guys are far smarter than I am when it comes to actually the applications of this, but when you think about new patient cohorts, better trial sites, we've heard from wonderful uh, suppliers here today who are really trying to tackle this problem and focus on a problem, but what I, I want to reiterate, do me a favor, suppliers. Don't just sprinkle AI fairy dust at the end of your statements for clickbait purposes or otherwise or for valuations, really figure out what is the critical problem that you're solving and be explicitly clear on your approach to how you get that done. Far too often, and I've seen God knows how many vendors, I sit on the board of a number of tech companies as well as their, their advisory boards of the big tech companies, including their venture funds. And the number one question they always ask me is, Millen, do you think this company has the legs to exit successfully? Do you think this company has the legs to actually generate value that can be measured in our lifetime, not necessarily in a drug's life cycle, right? The answer's not always easy, but I often find the companies that do this well, and I've had several companies where I've been an advisor who have exited at multi-billion dollar valuations, those ones are the ones who focused on clear and distinct problems that they were solving and were absolutely relentless in their pursuit of solving that problem. Operational effectiveness, though, is your easiest path to get into the world of machine learning. Just speed up things, automate things. Uh, there were some projects we did at Sanofi just in terms of automated regulatory filings, using natural language processing to actually take extracts of data, process it in a way that is human interpretable, and pushing it into a database that could then actually map that out into a filing piece of work. Really easy, saved tons of FTE time, was a very clear value demonstration the interesting part about it was when my team built this, um, just for kicks, we actually went and got some consulting proposals to see how long would this actually take. The numbers were astounding, as you can imagine. The time scale to do that work was astounding. My team, two guys, did it in two weeks. It's all about talent, and I'll talk about talent in a second, of what it means to hire the best talent, and how do you hire the best talent. But I want to drop into a subject because, you know, AI is used very liberally nowadays, and I'm afraid we're not actually clear about what we're talking about when we talk about AI. There are five schools of accepted world uh, of teaching of AI today, whether you go to MIT down the road, whether you go down to Stanford, or whether you go to University of Chicago or Imperial College or L'Ecole Polytechnique in France. These are the things that the future generation of machine learning engineers are learning today. It gets a little religious sometimes when you're dealing with the nerds that do this work, I've got to be honest with you. Uh, my team especially are completely bonkers when it comes to which approach do we take for any of these sorts of things. But you remember I talked about 
logic and reasoning and the ability to learn. In today's world of AI, reasoning and learning have not yet been applied. So if people are telling you that they're doing this, they're lying. They're flat out lying because it hasn't been done. Deep minds come close with symbolic representations, or sorry, of non-symbolic representations of doing AI, which forms more into the connectionist world. This is the world of deep learning. It's really great for certain kinds of data. It is absolutely awful for certain, for other approaches and problems that you're trying to solve. Um, and if you're wondering what some of these acronyms are here, and I apologize for using some acronyms, support vector machines, it's just stats. But my favorite one is G-O-F-A-I. Anyone take a guess at what that means? Good old-fashioned AI. <laughs> it's basically data mining. It's the use of statistical methods to be able to prove a particular point. And the Bayesian tends to be the favorite of biostatisticians here today. Um, and when we think about the role of data science and machine learning engineers, one thing you want to be clear of, and it's been a really interesting, interesting trajectory. You know, I started my career working on the Human Genome Project, and it was fascinating to see how we kind of evolved our titles uh, to get that extra zero in our paycheck. Uh, and it was, it was one of those things where we started out as bioinformatics, computational biology, uh, then moving into data mining experts, then of course into statistical programming experts, and then data science came, and that was a hallelujah moment because we finally got recognized for stuff that we were doing. But then data science is disappearing now as well, and it really is about machine learning and applied machine learning specifically. You don't need to hire a machine learning engineer and a data scientist. They're the same thing, right? <clears throat> At least the good ones are. I want to get back also to these two paradigms of AI now connected to the data world. This is critically important to understand because it'll help you in your decision making as you reduce to practice your application of AI. Number one is the knowledge-driven world. This is typically represented by symbolic AI methodologies. And these are just methods, right? Again, just methods to understand patterns, methods to understand and develop predictions. When you think about knowledge-driven, this is really the world that we have consistently lived in. It's how, over the last 60 to 70 years, we have developed applied statistics to solving these problems. The advantages in that is that it's highly causal because you're using a priori knowledge to be able to define the logic and the reasoning. It's interpretable because humans can actually use that to take actionable uh, uh, actions on. Does that make sense? I don't know. Um, then, um, but it's not data hungry, right? You don't need a lot of data. Right? And I'm not talking about big data, thick data, wide data, deep data, inside-out data. It doesn't matter. The adjective does not matter. It's just data. Right? And when you look at these sorts of things, the disadvantages of it, however, become glaringly obvious, which is why the notion, if you will, of let's get a lot more data, big data, if you will, came into place. Because it's often incomplete. It's often inaccurate. You have gaps in data. You have interoperability issues that are going on in data. You're not really sure what the heck you're going to do for integration, right? And these are real problems. And it's also not very predictive. Now, a lot of forecasting and banks, et cetera, have used this methodology for years to be able to score us on credit. They're now moving in different areas to this more inter uh, symbolic way of doing work, which is where the world of cloud computing and machine learning came about. As soon as that came about, it transformed the way in which we could previously not apply large-scale computing projects to now doing it 
in a matter of hours, if not seconds. But the advantages of this piece are that it is data-driven. So when you talk about data-driven companies, what we're really talking about here is a cultural difference in how we leverage data as an asset that is equally valued as your small molecule, that is equally valued as your share price, and it is equally valued as information assets. Because let's face it, our entire industry, the single thing that we produce the most of is data. The single thing we manage very poorly is data. Right? And this is where you want to start thinking about, okay, well, it can be very accurate if you assume you've managed to pre-process a lot of the data to reduce the noise to signal issues. But the inferences can be done and observed. It's a learning representation. So you have logic and you have learning. Now think of how many times you've actually combined both of these together. Like I said, it hasn't been done yet. It's happening in some academic circles. The Turing Prize winners of last year are exploring with this. Their students are exploring with this. Some of them are our interns at Celerity. Uh, one of our interns actually just finished building the Google Genome Browser. And it's fantastic work, right? It's really, really strong work. But this combination of those different five practices are what's going to yield the next major breakthrough that we're going to see in machine learning, which for me in healthcare is terribly exciting because it's finally a way that we can marry business and technology in the same breath. <clears throat> Partnerships have changed. I was really pleased to hear, I think it was Takeda that did some crowdsourcing uh, the other day, or they're planning to do crowdsourcing. You know, the whole notion of outsourcing and insourcing, I would argue, you know, I remember Olivier Brandecourt had, had dinner with him once, and he said, Milan, you know, why are you building this team of incredible people? I mean, their salaries are almost as much as what mine are. And I'm like, why? takes that to hire these people, right? I mean, the issue is not hiring a Verily or a Google or Facebook person at their base salary. They make all their money in their options, right? And to pay these people to come into your team and to attract them, you have to give something more than just money. It's purpose as well. But what I've found here is when you hire good people, the work that you can do is significantly accelerated, significantly accelerated. And when you have these good people on board, you then have to question your outsourcing strategy and you have to question what you actually build as a core competency. And I remember when Olivier asked me, he said, well, why do you think we need this? We're a pharmaceutical company. And I said, that's what Kodak said too. Right? <clears throat> I think there's a big issue that we're facing right now in terms of where do you source these folks from versus where do you don't? And how do you partner with the big companies? I've seen a lot of glossy press releases that have come out from different companies, but when I speak to the people on the ground, it's a bit shameful in terms of what's actually being done. And I think on top of that, we're not still attracting the best of talent to come to our industry. We are not. We are not a brand name in the world of machine learning. You become a brand name when you have a significant purpose that goes beyond your physical branded drug identity. That's when it becomes powerful. So what does it look like? Now, every good AI team has to have a Star Wars analogy. Uh, now, I think now, it's not that these are individuals, right? You don't need to hire all of these people. This is where you can start thinking about how do I insource, outsource, or crowdsource these capabilities. But what I've observed in very large companies and also in small companies, and what I've had a chance to build at both Novartis and at Sanofi, 
was these particular things. And I should say this same model worked on how I helped BMW build their autonomous vehicle division to say, okay, if you're going to have these AI folks, this is the kind of team construct you're going to need to have in terms of a capability matrix. So it's completely orthogonal. It's industry independent, right? You need applied machine learning engineers and scientists. Notice I use the word scientists. There are two very distinct competency capabilities that these folks have. They're either brilliant in engineering high-performance computing on their algorithms, or they're brilliant in understanding the scientific impact and interpretation of what the problem is you're trying to solve. Two very different people. Likewise, for research, in my team, I have a specific team that does only research-based projects. And these research-based projects are to look at those five different fields of AI and start blending them together to see whether the output of one particular algorithm is better than the other. Our fundamental philosophy is let's not be religious about this. Let's pick the one that's most efficient to be able to prove a proof point. We don't need to have deep learning and overfit curves if at the end of the day a simple t-test will do. Okay. Data engineers, software engineers, interactive designers, and data visualization. So I did hear data visualization, data, I call it more data journalism, because they need to do more than just create fancy graphs. They need to be able to tell stories with the data. And if you don't have data journalists, I can tell you where to find them. Two schools right now are actually have these as official courses, Stanford and Columbia. And there are some brilliant students coming out from those colleges that are specialized in this area that not only have a visual arts background, but also have a background in working with big data types. Brilliant, brilliant folks. Uh, and tend to actually work for a lot of the journalist companies. Data ethicists is a new one. Um, one of the things I've really placed a big emphasis on, uh, not only with my team, but with colleagues that I speak to in the industry, uh, my friend Eric Colson over at Stitch Fix, we talk about this a lot, uh, which is around when we talk about bias in data, and bias in algorithms. We still do it on a gender-based model. Agreed, most of this stuff is written by guys. But I'll tell you what's also wrong, having it all written by women. Because I'll tell you, two of my team members are gender neutral, and they don't like that at all. And when we approach many of these sorts of topics, we have to do it in a way where you can screen the code base to be able to take out gender-biased words that proliferate a specific kind of behavior in the algorithm. It's very complex stuff, but these folks exist. I actually teach a class at Yale on this, uh, on this topic with the legal teams there. Last but not least, you need the good old-fashioned, get the, 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 the meat, if you will, the foundation done. Data governance, data standards, compliance, legal, all that kind of good stuff. Just to make sure that whenever you're starting a project, it's clear what the problem is you're solving and the intended use of the information assets that you're planning to use. Because you don't want to fall into any, uh, let's call it dystopian fallouts. When we talk about talent and capability distribution, you know, how do you sort of move these folks? You know, how do you distribute the capabilities? And this is really now your choice in some ways to determine what parts of it you outsource, what parts of it you insource. Uh, at Celarity, we do all of this internal. I don't partner with anyone at this point in time because I don't need to. I've got really top-notch people. But uh, we will at some point. Um, but when we do this kind of work, we typically start with you know, hundreds of ideas. But I, our ideas are not just ideas in a vacuum. Our ideas are always centered on a destination we want to reach. It's not the journey. It's not the how do we get there. It's the what if we could do this, and then prove out the it turns out 
that XYZ happens. Why is that important? That's really important because it helps you triage what you do, when you do, and how you do. It also helps you from a, a reducing to practice capability, compartmentalizing steps in the process so you can have iterative development very, very quickly improve these proof points along the way. What's critical that I show you here though, and this is the one thing I would urge you to consider, if you're hiring or planning to hire machine learning people, make sure we don't have or you implement a hierarchical distribution of these people. What do I mean by that? A physician, a biologist, a machine learning engineer are at the same level, same. In our company, our machine learning people are actually developing the novel hypotheses that then the biologists and researchers use. It's not hypothesis, generate data, analyze. I, I joked around once with a recent pharma executive and he said, yeah, you know, Millen, it's so true. Our informatics guys really are in the basement. You know, we, you know, I said, don't, don't do that to them. You'll never keep them, right? But uh, these are one of the things that you need to think about. And of course, the, the triage, the beauty of this is the diversity of being able to adjudicate on that machine learning technique now can come from three different angles. You have biology, you have, well, in our case, biology, but let's call it um, uh, business inference <clears throat> to how do you implement it and scale it to how do you develop the methods that are necessary to be able to do that. And it's a beautiful way of just knocking out things really quickly where everyone is on equal footing and then you can triage it a lot easier based on different criteria. We have it based on exploration, experimentation, production and scale. This is typically what our speeds are. Uh, normally, most of my guys do things, guys and girls, I should say, and them, uh, do them in either a day up to a week in terms of first level uh, development. If we're experimenting more so, so we've either knocked out or killed projects, and we often call projects numbers. We don't call them initiatives or give them a fancy name because it's much easier to kill a number than it is to kill a name. Um, when you do these two weeks in experimentation, again, rapid development, what it's allowed us to do, when I think of how some large companies have built out their R&D infrastructure, for example, where it's taken a number of years to get there, it took us two weeks to build it all out. Even Amazon came to us saying, how the hell did you guys do that? <clears throat> it's crazy, but if you just have the right methodology and the right talent, you can. Um, <clears throat> into production, of course, quarterly milestones where we keep evaluating how we go. I'm just being mindful of time, by the way, so I'm brushing a little bit here. Um, I talked about knowing your destination, and this is particularly relevant. You know, it was interesting in some offline conversations with people over, the, over yesterday. One concern that I heard evolve was the notion of how many pilots we really have going on right now. Like, nothing has really moved or it's moving, but we still haven't jacked it up to the next step of moving into production and saying, no, we're gonna reduce this to practice now. This is how we do virtual trials. These are the therapeutic areas that we focus virtual trials on. These are how we predict sites. And this is how we're going to predict sites every time we're thinking about launching a cohort in a particular area. We don't do that very well yet today, and I would encourage you to think about the destination first and then think about the team construct you actually need to reach that destination and take, in this instance, take a reductionist lens and compartmentalize plausible projects that you could do that prove value every step of the way. The last thing I would say here is creating the culture of AI. This is what my team believes in. Um, 
it's something I guess just over the years of working uh, sort of evolved this, if you will, into a, into a certain practice that I, I love mentoring. At first, the number one parameter that we hire people on is not really the, whether they have a PhD or not a PhD or a master's student. We, we typically look at IQ, which would be in the form of technology development, how do they actually approach solving a problem using machine learning? Do they truly understand how to differentiate between consecutive deep learning projects versus associated deep learning projects? These are the sorts of things that we look for. But if you take out the IQ, you will have a pretty crap team of healthy egos if you can't figure out a way for them to work together. Right? <clears throat> and so for us, what's really important to us is curiosity. Do they have the curiosity to articulate what-if scenarios? Do they have curiosity to understand what the impact of these things are? One of the things I deliberately ask my team is that every time we find a positive outcome, I want you to look for the Black Mirror version of that as well. Because the beauty of it is in some of those Black Mirror incidents, you can actually create new value. Think at off-target uh, off uh, representations that are going on within biology as part of your trial. We've actually found some very, very novel uh, uh, therapeutic approaches to solving off-target issues now. Courage and challenge, openly challenge. Um, in your team, it's okay, it's okay if people do challenge, but challenge not to be the smartest person in the room, challenge to solve the problem, right? Uh, commitment, we will fail. We will fail several times when we're doing our work. But I don't care about failing. I don't mind testing without reservation. I do care about how fast you learn and pick yourself up, right? Because if you're just resting in that space of despair because something failed and now you're penalized and you're worried whether you're going to get your bonus at the end of the year, that is not a good way to grow and nurture a team like this. Any team, for that matter. Last but not least is charity. Being the smartest person in the room is not the most relevant. Actually, what we need to focus on is being able to share that knowledge. And the more you can share, the better your team grows. So I'll leave you with a couple of call to actions. Number one, always think about value first. Um, again, I can't tell you with some of the VC companies that I work with as an advisor, I always ask the startup founders, what is the value you're creating from the problem you're solving? Can you articulate the monetization instrument associated with that? If you can't, go back and do your homework because you're not ready. Two, think big, execute fast, and execute small. Learn fast. Get better at sifting through clickbait. Right? There's a lot of stuff out there. I hope I've given you a few tools that you can easily Google, and I will tell you the number one tool that my team uses is Google for error messages in our code. I, there's actually an O'Reilly book for it now. It's pretty amazing. But um, it is the most useful tool. Last but not least, trust your team. If you're hiring these smart professionals, don't in their face suddenly start hiring consultants right in front of them when you've got these people that you hired their brains for. It's one of the most embarrassing and quickest ways to lose good people. Right. With that, thank you. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For information on the 10th Annual DFARM, visit theconferenceforum.org.